All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hi, Note to Self. This is Grace Barca calling from Reston, Virginia. Hi, my name is Chris and I live in Pennington, New Jersey. Hi, Note to Self. This is Claire Gilchrist from Vancouver, BC, Canada. Hi, Note to Self. This is Daniel from Phoenix, Arizona. I find the privacy paradox to be quite intriguing. Tens of thousands of you accepted our challenge to take on one of the dilemmas of our time. Hi, my name's Lou. I live in London in the UK. This morning when I went for my run, I was pondering the idea of data privacy. The dilemma is this. We deeply value our right to privacy. But whenever we download a new app or we sign up for something online, we feel like we have to give up that right. We download it or sign up anyway because we want to connect with family or find a job or share an important document or just know what's going on in the world. I am the classic person who worries about privacy but never really does anything about it. Opting out isn't an option, so we just don't deal with it. I had a discussion with coworkers who said they were scared of even thinking about privacy. We just keep clicking yes to all those terms of service. How are we private in today's world where we keep clicking yes for the sake of some benefit, whether small or big? Yeah, and besides, we love the great things we get from our technology. It's a real double-edged sword. Actually, it's what researchers call the privacy paradox. Every time I open up my phone or my computer, makes me angry and kind of sad. Yeah, it stinks. But together, we decided to try and take back some of our digital privacy to resolve this paradox, even just a little bit. Thank you for helping me find ways to get rid of some of those feelings and being more pragmatic. I'm calling to let you know that the Privacy Paradox Project has already made a difference in my life. It's Note to Self, the tech show about being human. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and this is the finale of our series called The Privacy Paradox. Every day for five days, we sent you a special newsletter and a podcast that tackled an aspect of digital privacy and our digital rights. We also gave you an assignment, an easy task to help you understand more about your digital identity. I've been following through this privacy paradox thing um, all week. I love following along and trying to become a more conscious user of technology. If you didn't take part in the project, it's cool. The beauty of the privacy paradox is that anyone can listen to the series anytime. So go back and start with the episode called The Bookie, the Phone Booth, and the FBI. And if you're ready for the five-part plan, do it. Just go to privacyparadox.org and we'll get you started right away. Yes, we ask for your email, but no, we won't share it with anyone. So here's what I wanted to know. 
Is it possible for thousands of listeners to look deeper into where their personal information goes online and then actually take steps to live a digital life that they can feel better about? It's time to find out. Day one of our five-part plan was called What Your Phone Knows. We talked about the difference between all the data versus the metadata coming out of your phone with our cryptographer friend, Bruce Schneier. Where you went, who you spoke to, what you read, what you looked at. That's the metadata. Metadata is surveillance data. It is incredibly personal. And so for your challenge, we asked you to go through the privacy settings on your phone to see which apps were collecting metadata from you that they didn't really need. Here's what happened to Dan in Manhattan. I think the best thing I discovered was that my flashlight app, which you know presumably exists just to turn on and off the light on the back of my camera, actually had access to my microphone and my contacts and my location. So that app got the X. Yeah, some of those apps are really greedy. They want to know as much as they can about you, and they want to sell it to other people. Day two was called The Search for Your Identity. We got into online advertising and how our identities get sorted, defined, and tracked online. We trade our personal information for more than just great coupons, Professor Joseph Turo told us. All of this gets put into databases, which then create profiles of us, which in the end have an impact upon how you're defined in your life without your at all having any idea what that definition is. So we asked you to try a website called Panopticlick from the folks at the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Panopticlick shows you how you're being tracked across the web, including by something called digital fingerprinting. Here's what Megan found out. I found that actually I protect my security online pretty well. But then on the flip side, I started thinking about, you know, I really am interested in exploring different religions. But recently, I have really begun to think about, well, just even if I'm just doing it out of curiosity, what would the government have to say if I decided to, like, look up a free online version of the Quran, you know? Some of you took action and installed blockers. But between all the different tools that only work for certain browsers, many of you sort of felt resigned, like Nicole in Bellingham, Washington. I realize it means I'm being tracked, and I don't like that. But I find it interesting that I'm not quite ready to take action because I don't fully even understand what this is. I may change that perspective as I learn more, but I'm discovering that unless I'm acutely aware of the negative impact of this tracking, I'm having a hard time justifying taking action. Nicole, I totally hear you. It is easier just to not know. But I love how you're observing your own behavior and that you're open to learning more and figuring out where you draw your privacy line. It's going to be different for all of us. I'm starting to think of it this way. We talk about becoming woke when it comes to racism and social injustice. Maybe the privacy paradox is about helping us get digitally woke. And I think that's a pretty good first step. Okay, moving on to day three, things turned philosophical. We talked about why when people say, oh, if the government wants to read my emails, let them. I've got nothing to hide. Well, we talked about why that statement is a bunch of baloney. You don't have to be doing something illegal to want privacy. 
It can be about protecting an intimate experience, choosing to share what you want and with whom. But these days, even if you choose to share something with a specific someone, if you do it online, you can end up sharing much more than you mean to. We asked you to try the latest in something called Psychometrics, a website called Apply Magic Sauce. It uses a scrap of text you've written online or your Facebook profile to figure out your personality. It's been widely reported that both the Trump and Clinton campaigns used psychometrics to laser pinpoint their online advertising. And some of you found the accuracy of this tool unnerving. I did the apply magic sauce on the way to work today after listening to the podcast. Yikes. Nailed me exactly. Privacy is very important to me, and this exercise has me thinking about what steps I can take to confuse or mislead or hide from the system. I don't care much for it knowing me so well. But then there's this listener who found that accuracy reassuring. Immediately guessed the correct age. It um, knew my religion, my political affiliation, I'm not mad about any of these results. It just really gave me a lot of reassurance knowing that the material that I put out into the world is reflective of my true self, of who I actually am. I'm not being fake. I'm not being somebody else. This is actually who I am. There were just as many of you, though, who said that Apply Magic Sauce was absolutely dead wrong about you. It said, I am a married gay man with leadership potential. Um, I am a divorced woman, heterosexual, kind of on the introvert side. Fascinating, right? It says that my personality type is not drawn to the caring professions. I'm a nurse and I teach nursing. What? One listener said that part of their job is to use tools like Magic Sauce that do so-called social listening. And this person is frightened how much they know or think they know about the people they have to track. We'll talk more about the potential consequences later in this show. On to day four, the psychological side of privacy. We talked about living in public with the executive producer of The Bachelor reality show. And we learned about individuation or why psychologists believe that privacy is a necessary thing for humans to grow into mature adults. And so we asked you to try to be completely anonymous for 15 minutes that day to remind yourself or discover what total privacy feels like. One person told us turning off the phone felt like traveling to a foreign country. Here's what Jay in Florida thought. I took your 15-minute anonymity challenge, which I believe should have been called a 15-minute vacation. Yeah, shutting it off can feel pretty good. Everyone liked this day's challenge. And I think it's a good reminder that sometimes the easiest button to push is the off button, although that's not an option very often. Anyway, on to day five. Day five was my personal favorite. I got to hang out with the inventor of the web, the lovely Sir Tim Berners-Lee, who told us about his plans to build a new kind of web where we would have control over our own data. But until he gets this new kind of web made, he suggests that we each write down our own personal terms of service. 
rules to live by online. And here's how some of you told us you are going to change your own way of living online and off because of this project. I'm a reporting analyst at a major company which collects customer data. I value privacy significantly, and on a day-to-day basis, it makes me feel so sick that we harvest this information in order to make something run just a little bit faster or make something just slightly more convenient for a customer. I'm hoping to leave this job soon. I'm a librarian, and I think Privacy Paradox is making me a better one. Librarians really believe in protecting the privacy of all people, and this project helped me understand how to do that better. I went through and deleted a couple old social media accounts I had that I haven't been using for years, but which are just floating around in the ether associated with me. So thank you for that motivation. Instead of just clicking download and clicking OK, I emailed back IT and asked for more information about this. I am in the marketing world and I am kind of seeing the information that people make available through the platforms, whether they know it or not. Do I pause and think about it as much as I should? Probably not because I'm not sure I can handle it. Um, and does it unravel so many things that we're doing with our online selves? Um, I don't know. I pulled over on my drive to record this and send it because it's been gnawing at me for uh, a while. And my name is Wayne Masika, and I live in Vermont. I'm glad Wayne pulled over to leave us that message. Many thanks to him and everyone who shared their thoughts and reactions to the privacy paradox. We read and listened to everything. Thank you. Back to what Wayne said, that this issue of privacy is gnawing at him. Yeah, I think that gnawing is only going to continue. Because while, yes, we should use strong passwords or know what is tracking us across the web, the issue of digital privacy is becoming much bigger than just one person. Good thing there are tens of thousands of us doing this project, right? What I hear from you and our experts is that we need to think how we move forward together to make sure our digital civil rights are protected. And as Sir Tim, the inventor of the web, explained on day five, it's going to take a paradigm shift. Coming up, How we get to a privacy paradigm shift with two people leading the charge and the results of that privacy personality quiz that so many of you took. We're back. It's Note to Self. I'm Manoush Zamarodi. And we did this huge project on privacy called The Privacy Paradox. This episode is all about what we discovered with you. But before we go any further, I just want to do a quick news update. Because since we began doing this project with you, dear listeners, a couple things have happened. The TV maker Vizio got in trouble for collecting and selling viewing data from millions of people's TVs without their knowledge. In Congress, the House unanimously passed a bill that would require a warrant to search email messages and other documents in the cloud if they've been there longer than 180 days. But here's the bad news. This bill has died before. Last year, when it got to the Senate, Senator Jeff Sessions wanted to add amendments that were more surveillance-friendly for law enforcement. Jeff Sessions is now, of course, the country's attorney general. Okay, 
couple more news points here. The day after our episode about advertising and tracking, day two, Facebook announced that it would shut down ads for housing, credit, and jobs that target people for their ethnic affinity. Basically, look at race. And there are reports that lots of people in Washington, including scientists at the EPA, are using encrypted text messaging like the one that we talked about on day one of this project. And now some news about you, listeners. Before we started the project, we asked you a bunch of questions about how you feel about privacy. Then we did our five-part plan. And then we surveyed you again. And we saw a few very striking changes. Before our project, 37% of you strongly agreed that data will need to be regulated in the future. Now, 64% of you strongly agree. 87% of you also said that this project showed you privacy invasions you didn't know existed. 70% of you said that now you want to push for protection of our digital rights. A third of you said you'll also probably delete a social media profile. And just one more stat. We tallied your answers to our privacy personality quiz. Remember that? And then you got a personality profile. So... Just one-fifth of us were true believers in privacy before the project. Now half of us are. And yes, I'm including myself in that. I was a realist, but after this project, I am a firm believer in our right to privacy. So we care. We care a lot more after doing this. And that's good. But what happens now? To help me answer that question, I invited Solon Barakas into the studio. Hi, Solon. Hi. Nice to be here. Solon, you are a researcher in Microsoft's lab here in New York. Your focus is on the ethical side of tech. What do you think about our listeners and how their privacy, their thoughts on privacy changed? I mean, does it just mean we need to talk more about this stuff? Is education the key? Is this usually how people respond when they learn more about how their personal information is being used? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think the more deeply you go into this, there's also the possibility of feeling somewhat resigned to the situation. And it's encouraging that so far the project hasn't resulted in a change in attitude where people actually feel like they don't have much agency. But I do think that there is certainly research and a general sense in the community of people who advocate around privacy that people might begin to kind of lose hope or feel that there isn't really much to do. And I think this is very, very present in discussions about what felt like the missed opportunity with Snowden in particular. Yes, and Uh, the Obama administration more generally, that actually you would have thought that President Obama would have been not quite as into implementing more surveillance and data collection, and yet that was not the case. That's right. What's kind of happened with the new administration is sort of people's hypothetical that was often rhetorical saying like you don't know what government you're going to live under so we should have rules that assume the worst right this was always part of the arsenal of tools that privacy advocates would would rely on and it often felt rhetorical and now it feels much much more real here we are we don't know what this administration is going to want to do with our data and that's a bipartisan issue i think for sure yeah i think you've set me up perfectly for me to play you a message that one of our listeners left for us. Because to be fair, we did not convince everyone. Hello, I am 25 years old and I live in Brooklyn. Last night I was listening to the 
previous episode and you said, oh, you know, that thing that people say where they say my life is an open book and, and I have nothing to hide from the internet is all bumpkiss and baloney. And I said, well, that should be a fascinating listen because that's the kind of thing that I say all the time. I mean, I'll be perfectly honest. The most damning things in my internet presence are, number one, my plenty of dick pics that I've sent to various people. And number two, um, all of the things, you know, if somebody could find out all the things that I've downloaded illegally uh, online, like video games and movies and, and stuff like that. I've gone through in my mind every single thing that I've done that's potentially damning. And I am confident in my ability to justify pretty much all of my actions. No, you know what? 100% of my actions. And I think we're leading to a world where we can be radically honest and say, well, I did this and I made a mistake and that's not who I am anymore. I mean, maybe that's hopelessly optimistic and naive of me to say that. So on. <laughs> Do you see, I mean, is there anything you can say that could convince him that privacy is indeed important? Because I have to say, I gave it my best shot. For the people who don't feel like they have very much to lose, should their information be widely circulated, they may feel they have nothing to hide. Right? But I think what's great about that is that it recognizes that for the most part, the norms around that kind of behavior have evolved, right? Like I think mm. 10, 15, 20 years ago, certainly when it comes to things like circulating naked pictures of yourself, which I'm sure is a lot, I know for a fact is a longstanding practice, but in this particular way, you know. Or this- interracial marriage or gay marriage or things that we took as being absolutely socially unacceptable now is normal, but maybe it's hard to see that. That's right. And I think the idea is that by shining light on things which are at the moment taboo or which people would otherwise be fearful of disclosing, you actually help other people who are not in a position to necessarily do that. But at the same time, let's not pretend that there are people who, in fact, are very vulnerable. And if, in fact, these things were found out about them, that it would really affect them, right? It can affect their social relationships with their families. It can affect their employment. I mean, all sorts of things. So I don't think that this is a terribly difficult thing to respond to if for a moment you stop and think about people who don't occupy the kind of privileged position which lets you behave this way without serious consequence. The point isn't that it's necessarily just about him. It's about all the people who were walking down the street with him when he left us that message who maybe don't have the luxury of being treated fairly by what they put out into the world. For sure. And what I'll even add to that is that his actions can implicate other people. And let's kind of Imagine an analogous situation where someone is perfectly happy to disclose something really sensitive about them, right? Like their sexual orientation or the fact that they have some kind of communicable disease or whatever it might be. They felt perfectly happy to disclose it, but there are many other people who would not. But because the person who's happy to disclose it resembles the people who are not willing Mm -hmm. to disclose it, this person's disclosure could make it possible for the company or institution that has that information to develop a model to infer it about other people. Oh. So it's almost like the example would be like, I'm Anoush, I'm open with the fact, I'm not actually an alcoholic, but if I was, (laughs) that I would be like, yep, I'm owning it, I'm telling you that I'm an alcoholic, I'm also from New Jersey, and I'm also half Persian. And then there's this other half Persian woman who's also from the East Coast. They would just assume that she also had a drinking problem because all the data points match up. Exactly. I want to ask you about the people making the technology that we use. You work for Microsoft. This is a big tech company. You work in the research lab, though. How open do you think these big tech companies are to change 
when it comes to protecting people's personal information. I had one listener send an email that said, I love what this project is exploring and promoting, and I think it needs to be done. But unfortunately, I feel pessimistic that the majority of Internet users will actually change their online habits. Without the majority changing, I don't think that the tech giants will change their methods either. My greatest wish is to be proven wrong. Right. So you you find these cases where seemingly like business actually aligns with consumers' privacy interests, even if they might be in opposition to like the government's policy. Because it's good for business, not just because we stand by the principle of privacy. Right. But there's going to be a bunch of other cases where there's a direct conflict between what the business model is and what might be a way of protecting people's privacy, right? So most of these companies are entirely advertising funded. Right, which we understand. We know how it works now. And I feel like that's where my listeners are. They're like, great, what do I do with all this knowledge? How do we fit ourselves into this privacy pie as just regular people? You know, I really wish I had a better answer to this question, having spent the better part of a decade thinking about some of this stuff. So, you know, you might have hopes for regulation, but a sense that actually enforcing the regulation can be difficult. You might have hopes that companies can be incentivized to behave differently if there's enough consumer backlash. I really don't know. I, I think what these platforms do in large part is relieve us of the burden of having to make a lot of those choices ourselves. Because even if we were given the power to make those choices, it might not even really be obvious what choices to make. Right. So I'm back to my Hippocratic Oath idea of techies having mm-hmm. to take an oath. Mm-hmm. I think that's just like stopping and thinking, just like don't do harm. Okay, maybe don't do good, but like, yes, if you optimize something, just make sure it's not hurting other people. Yeah, I think in the other area where I do a lot of work, which is sort of on like discrimination and fairness, there's a huge amount of that that is unintentional. And if there was just a bit of attention to the way things can go yeah, wrong. Yeah, exactly. Just a discussion, right? Or like an ethics class when you're getting your computer science degree. Which, like just yeah. something. Yeah, which I teach and which a bunch of my colleagues teach. And, yeah. But they're not required, right? Some places make them required. Are, but like there's a lot of debate around like the way to do this, right? Like so there are people in these companies who are very devoted to these kinds of ideals. A lot of people – following the Stone Revelations were like deeply upset because they are themselves committed to a lot of these ideals of privacy. So to the degree to which consumer behavior can be leverage or ammunition for people who are advocating internally, that to me also seems promising, right? So I don't think that people acting in ways that demonstrate their dissatisfaction with the current approach are wasting their time. I actually think that that's really, really meaningful. Some of the principles in the Constitution and like the amendments, like these things are really about trying to create a space for citizens to be free of government scrutiny and to cultivate ideas and opinions sort of unmolested or unfearful that they're going to be stigmatized or prosecuted, right? Like you want to be able to engage in behavior online without feeling that, like, your life chances are somehow being limited. We should have a space to kind of develop ideas that we wouldn't otherwise if we felt that someone was just always there to kind of use what we're doing to pigeonhole us or to make really consequential decisions about us, right? So preserving, like, a sense of agency that is not an illusion, but really understanding that, like, I have the ability to shape the way I am perceived by the world, not, like, completely, 
But with the sense that like other people are going to be making important decisions about me based on those things, that's what I think is worth preserving, like a way for people to feel that they are their own agent in the world. That's a good spot to leave it at. <laughs> Solon Barakas, thank you so much. Thanks. Actually, that's not a good spot to leave it. After we talked to Solon, we decided to get in touch with one more person. The guy who built that tool that so many of you loved to hate from day three, applymagicsauce.com. Dr. Michal Kaczynski is now at Stanford University's psychology department. He built Apply Magic Sauce while he was at Cambridge. We asked him what he thinks we need to know about how tools profile our personalities these days and help marketers micro-target us with ads that can trigger our emotions. We have a choice. If you believe that there is an environment in which you are being manipulated, or if you believe that there is a politician that is manipulating you, or a company that's manipulating you, just don't vote for them. Don't buy their products. Stop using a given platform. You do have a choice. But what if I don't realize that that's what they're doing to me? Well, that's a very interesting question. And I believe that this basically calls for more monitoring of what's happening online. Now, we do not really have much of that happening online, also because the problem is way more complicated. Yeah, It's complicated. If you got one thing out of the privacy paradox, it's that this issue has lots of layers to it. But breaking it down into parts so that we can understand it, discuss it, and question it, that is what we do here. Friends, please don't worry. Note to Self is not going to become Note to Privacy. But we will continue to talk and question and push for change here, together. So the Privacy Paradox Project is not over. If you tried it and it made you think or even changed how you approach your own digital privacy, please tell people about it. We designed this as a project that anyone can do anytime. And it's kind of similar to our other projects that you might want to check out. Infomagical, that was last year. This is all about learning to deal with the constant barrage of information that are overloading our devices and our brains every day. And Bored and Brilliant, which was about learning to space out, put the phone down for a hot minute, and get in touch with your creativity. And talk about making change. All that we learned from the Bored and Brilliant project, I have put it into a book. And that book is coming out in September. So if you're a Note to Self super fan, yes, pre-order the book. And also please go to iTunes, rate us, and subscribe to the podcast. We live in a world where algorithms matter, and this one happens to matter big time to us. It helps people who are just getting into podcasting find us more easily. And one last thing for you, dear listener. Thank you for making it all the way here. We have a little something special for you uh, to help you spread the gospel. You can now support Note to Self and protect your digital privacy with the very first Note to Self Faraday bag for your phone. And if you're like, Faraday, who? Okay, so if you're in your therapist's office and you're like, hmm, really want to make sure I'm private, stick your phone in there. If you are out to dinner and you're kind of tempted to look at your phone, but you really want to try and be present with the people at the table, stick your phone in there. So many good uses for this thing. It's about the size of a little hand wallet, so it doesn't take up a ton of space. And anyone who signs up to donate just $5 a month or $60 all at once to support this show and more projects like The Privacy Paradox will get it. 
And don't worry, all your contact info is secure. Just go to noteselfradio.org slash donate to get it now. Or even easier, you can text us. Maybe you've texted with us before. This is the number to text the word NOTE to. The number is 69866. Get you started. I have so many wonderful people I want to thank for helping us with this project. The awesome Note to Self team is Jen Poyant, Kat Aaron, and Joe Plord. Many thanks to everyone at WNYC for all their help making this project happen, especially Megan Cunane, Kathy Wong, and Caroline English. And a big thank you to Hannes Brown for his beautiful original scoring. Note to Self comes from WNYC Studios. I'm Anoush Samarodi. Talk to you next week. Remember that? And then you got a personality pro...